Welcome to Beyond the Lions, a podcast by Roly about books, culture, and our times. Born to a wealthy Parsi family in Mumbai and educated at India's premier institution, Kumar Gandhi was on his way to a career path that many of his generation could only aspire to. However, a shocking racist encounter in London forced him to challenge his thoughts and took his life in an entirely different direction. From being a qualified CA and working in London, including a part-time job at Selfridges, to returning to India to completely embed himself in activism, Kobad has lived a life of extremes. Along with his beloved late wife Anuradha, also well-respected and much admired activist in her own right, Kobad dedicated himself to the upliftment of the marginalized in India. A number of made-up cases against him meant he spent 10 precious years in prisons across India. On his release in 2019, one of the first things Kobad did was to write his story. This resulted in the incredible book Fractured Freedom, a prison memoir published by Roly Books. Kobad and I get on a call to discuss how this first-class student of chemistry became one of India's most recognized activists and the work he feels that remains to be done. I am Priya Kapoor and this is Beyond the Lines, a weekly podcast by Roly Books. Kobad, thank you for taking the time today and I believe this is your first ever experience with a podcast. Yes, it is. I'm totally unfamiliar with these uh, instruments. Okay, so let's just begin. You had a privileged childhood where you were probably not exposed to the horrors of caste and injustice that exist in this country. How and when did your life take such a turn? Uh, well, uh, I went to the Doom School, and that's a quite an elite school, but it gives you an all-round sort of uh, approach to life. A sort of uh, you, at least you are able to. It encourages independent thinking in sports and such things that are. quite uh, not there in the present education system so it did open one, uh, it didn't open one's mind but it gave uh, a basis for being able to think for oneself so actually there was uh, no occasion to come in touch with social life as such of the country of the people uh, we were just uh, knowledgeable about our subject matters about some sports and such things but when i went to london and for my chartered accountancy that's after doing my bsc in from zavier college in bombay uh, i was uh, suddenly thrown open to the world and what i witnessed there while i was at the indian ymca at the earlier stages that there was a lot of racism now even that i was not aware of earlier and this really made me think i uh, because it really meant that indians are inferior to uh, the british or the whites and uh, i didn't think that and uh, i saw one or two incidents of which were pretty repulsive and so i started investigating further into this and then i looked into the indian freedom struggle the history of colonialism the history of british rule in india and also at that time this was the late 60s where the communism was the rage the vietnam war was going on there were huge meetings against the vietnam war so i started getting interested in the communist movement as well initially i first very initially i first started reading gandhi for uh, regarding the racism but i found no real answers there then i found that it was the communists in fact who were taking up the issue to a limited extent racism so i started going further deeper into communism and uh, finally 
I was totally then allied with the communist group out there at that time. And uh, while having a street meeting, we were attacked by white skinheads. Instead of them being arrested, we were arrested. And the three of us arrested, two were whites. The British police, Bobby's, what they did is they took me separately and beat me up a bit amidst uh, racial abuse. And uh, they were as racist as those skinheads, the British police. And uh, so, and they put charges on us. Of course, there we were released on bail. There you don't go to bail. Uh, unlike, unlike India, you don't go to jail unless you are convicted. But after a year when the case came up, I made a statement in the court again that it's, uh, it's the British uh, rulers who need to be tried, not me. Because it's they who robbed our country, looted it, destroyed our country, reduced the richest country in the world to being one of the poorest in the world. It's the British who have designed they were on, on top of that, they think they're superior and they treat us uh, badly. So uh, the, the judge himself was furious and he sent me to straight to Bixton prison. And anyway, in that uh, time, I thought that chartered accountancy of the corporate atmosphere didn't suit my thinking. So while I had to wait for the trial a year passed, I decided to give up the CA. And once the case got over, to come back to India and work for the peace masses. So that's what I did. Once the case got over, we served our sentence also. And then I came back and uh, started working in the slums of Bombay. And then I got in touch with some groups. And the rest is history. And uh, this is around the time that you also met uh, Anu or Anuradha and who later on went on to become your wife. The book is dedicated to Anu. In fact, she finds a mention in almost every chapter of the book. How did you two meet? Well, actually, uh, I had no contact with any uh, left circles out here at all. I knew no one in, the, in that line. And I started working in the slum, which was near our house, Mayanagar. And uh, then I saw a poster of uh, this uh, alternative university by an organization called Proya, Progressive Youth Movement. So I went to that. It was at Rio College. Uh, I went there. And there were all these youth uh, students out there as uh, partaking in this alternative university with one or two professors conducting it. And they were also part of the uh, left-wing group, the professors. And there Anu, Anuradha was there. This was about a month or two after I came back and I met her there for the first time and she was already a student leader. And then with the, she was very much apparently agitated because she had gone for the, uh, with the college to a Bangladesh refugee camp. And uh, at the refugee camp, she was horrified with the, by the conditions. And since then, she's been uh, herself awakened. Of course, her parents were both communists. So she came from that background. So uh, then she also became active and we were active in Mayanagar, in the slums, in posturing, in the workers' movement. She went on to become a lecturer uh, at the Wilson College and then uh, Junjunwala College. And uh, then finally emergency came where we were low-key. Then it was a relationship developed. And in 1977, we got married at a small function at my father's place in Mamlesho with her family, my family, and just a few others. So that was that. And then we lived our whole life together, of course, and moved to Nagpur and other such places. And unfortunately, in 2008, after going to a tribal uh, Mahila, tribal Mahila class in Jharkhand, she contracted a 
falciparum malaria. She already had systemic sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease. So probably her internal system was weakened and just came as a complete shock that uh, she was quite fit and quite okay and just passed away overnight. So there have been another Gandhi memorial meetings uh, being held in Bombay ever since for the last eight nine, nine, eight, nine meetings and very well attended. But what important aspect of her, which I have tried to bring out in this book and in earlier articles also, epitomize the best values that a human can have, naturalness, straightforwardness, no ego, simplicity, and uh, yet having her, she was not naive, she had a sharp mind, she was a good organizer, for which, of course, these organizations gave her credit. But these value systems, I think, I took as a model uh, for any activist in the future because communism has gone back and we find that power and money tends to corrupt and she was not uh, corrupted by either of these two things. Just not from the point of view of being a wife, but from the point of being uh, of her qualities in the movement and as an activist. So you write very movingly about her and also about her passing and you know, subsequently the kind of impact that she's had, not just on your life, but on the movement. Now, speaking about the movement, in your opinion, why have the left and the Dalit movements not aligned their interests in India? Actually, well, when I came, uh, it was a pure coincidence. When I came back from London and I was started working in the slum, just by coincidence, the, the Dalit Panther movement burst out in the same worry area. And I had no idea, again, like I had no idea of racism, I had no idea of caste also. And uh, it so happened that this Mayanaka slum in which I worked, they were all Dalits, Mahars. And uh, soon it became a center of the Dalit Panther movement. And then I read up a lot on the caste. And I thought that is uh, even more than racism. It was even far more oppressive. So while Marxists out there, or at least some Marxists out there, were taking up the racism issue. Here I felt it was a key issue and I was quite shocked to find that the left groups out here were not uh, amenable to it. They were saying that no, this diverts from the class issue. Uh, it's not an issue that we have to take up. The Panthers first they said were sort of rowdies and things like that. But then uh, then I studied more Ambedkar, I studied the caste question and then uh, when I found that there was no acceptance I started also writing on articles on it. How it is an important issue to take up. And then Anuradha, also an associate person, a lecturer, she also went deep into this question. She went deeper than me because uh, uh, finally it is her 100-page article in which was printed posthumously in the book Swifting the Change. There uh, was a detailed analysis on the caste question right from prehistoric times. And I find that uh, there has been a lot of resistance to... Uh, taking up the caste question and I assess it was for three reasons. One is that the Indian communists, both uh, parliamentary type and the Naxalite types, both have been rather dogmatic in their interpretation of Marxism in the Indian context, particularly they either took from the Soviet Union or they took from the China and so they sort of negated local realities. The second point is that uh, a lot of the leadership were naturally from intellectual background. Obviously, that's upper caste. So they would have their caste thinkers. Actually, what happens is that we find that our thinking is shaped, or at least our emotions are shaped in early childhood. And ideology doesn't immediately wash away uh, earlier 
thoughts, processes like caste, patriarchy and all that, the conscious effort has to be made. But uh, generally, the Marxists took it uh, that uh, once ideology changed, automatically all our values have changed. That doesn't happen. And so it was with caste, patriarchy and many other things which are embedded in our subconscious mind right from childhood. So that also had its impact in a subtle way. And the third uh, reason is that the caste issue is more particularly, it's, it affects everyone, but uh, it more particularly affects the Dalits who are treated as untouchables. And in the Marxist circles, the working class, the peasantry, all that, a large sections of the masses of these movements will be OBCs, will be non-Dalits, uh, and they'll have their caste biases. It is difficult one to unite them around their economic demands, whether it's the farmers' demands or it's the working class demands, is easier. But if you start bringing in the caste factor and trying to educate them, you have to give up caste. That may not uh, be taken well by the cadres or the mass activists. And it might impact the economic struggle. So from a very pragmatic point of view also, it was probably put on the back burner. Unless caste is annihilated from its roots, there cannot be democratization of India because caste by its nature is divisive and hierarchical and oppressive. All three. Moving yeah. on, I wanted to ask, I mean, you were in prison for 10 years. You were robbed of some of the most valuable years of your life. What would you say was the most difficult part of prison? Well, the difficult part of adjusting was the, particularly in Tihar, where I spent the maximum amount of my time, was the complete lack of self-respect that one has inside the jail. You're just treated like dirt and you have absolutely no right and as in an under trial, in fact, what the irony of the whole situation is that here we are not even sentenced, but in the Indian jail system, the under trial has less rights than those who are convicted. The convicted people can roam around, they are given jobs, they are given this and they get paid and things like that. And uh, besides the factor of class inside jail who well off can pay and get all the facilities, just as in normal terms, and under trial is the underdog, while the convict is the uh, treated with uh, has more rights. So in other places, it wasn't that bad. But, but I spent very little time in the other places, except of course Jharkhand, which was a different uh, type of uh, situation. But Tihar particularly gave no one any rights. Like for example, even while being taken to court or the hospital, I was taken in a van, put in a cage, three levels of security gates stopping, and twenty armed police. I mean, that type of thing uh, was uh, there just to humiliate because even in Andhra, which is a sensitive area, and my cases were taken in Telangana, in, inside Adalabad and in the hotbed areas, what they claim were the hotbed areas, there was none of this paraphernalia of the police and cages and things. I was taken in a civilized way. And so also everywhere else. But here it was just humiliating and they sought to humiliate you in every possible way. And uh, it was all geared to that. So that I felt that was the most difficult thing and uh, to adjust to. And uh, after 2013, I think it was, they started this transfer process every three months. Earlier, they wouldn't put it. I was not put on that transfer routine from one jail to another. That was the last straw that really broke back. I had to go on a hunger strike to stop it. Fortunately, then DG intervened and then stopped it. But then... By then, I nearly finished the cases also, and I was shifted to Hyderabad jail. So, it is really very demeaning, the whole process. And they talk about torture and things like that. Uh, these type of jails, 
they break a person. If you spend two, three years out there, you're totally broken physically and mentally. And uh, even if you didn't come out, you just don't feel like I, each time I was breaking down, I had to get hold of myself, continue with my yoga and exercises to keep my physical fitness and continue with my writing process and study and all that. That fortunately, nowhere did they stop. And uh, that mental involvement and physical uh, routine helped me maintain my sanity and even physical at this late age, physical health, though it's been quite badly hit by uh, arthritis and sciatica besides the earlier ailments. This demeaning aspect of where you have absolutely zero rights at all, hardly to breathe even. But I'm talking about Tihar and to some extent it was the same in Jharkhand, but uh, Hyderabad and Vishaka, we were to be given political prisoner status, so it was virtually like a hostage. Patiala in Gujarat, I was there for just hardly a month or month and a half. And even there, I was given a lot of respect and treated really, well, very well. So, but Tihar and Delhi, besides the judges and of course the lawyer who was excellent, and the judges who were also very fair, the rest of the system was horrific. And I spent seven years out of the ten in Delhi. No, I mean, your experiences that you've written in the book just sound horrific. And so many of us who had been following your story were very relieved in, uh, you know, the, towards the end of 2019 when you were finally released. And this brings me to my next question, that what has life been like for you uh, since your release? I mean, it's a very different world out here. What have you been up to and what next for you? Around that time, I did have an inkling that I should use the rest of my life to write my experiences and draw some conclusions. And uh, I, uh, of course, what happened, one big uh, toll in this whole process of the jail, 10 years in jail, my memory has gone really very bad. And I can't remember much of the stuff. I had a lot of notes. I have, I have not been able to get hold of them because I've not been able to, because of COVID, not able to travel. But uh, I did think of that. But of course, the, I, I, I was fortunate, in, in fact, to get the support of earlier my mother and father, both parents and Anu's parents, were highly supportive, even ideologically. They supported us in every possible way. And even after they've gone, Anu's uh, brother out there and his family and uh, my sister, the only re remaining relatives, have been extremely supportive. They may not agree with the ideology, but uh, like my, our parents, but... Uh, they have been really very supportive and it's because of this support actually that I've been able to settle now a bit uh, into what they call normal life after release. And uh, it was my sister-in-law, that's uh, Sunil's wife, who helped me get all my legal documents together, get all my Aadhaar and all those, that, those things together. And it's uh, my sister who's keeping me here. I'm just now speaking from my sister's house. So... That itself has been, as far as our circles, of course, I have to earn an income. I don't have that type of money and things like that. I can't, don't want to be dependent on anyone and be a burden. Another thing I was quite astounded by is the Parsi community has been quite supportive. And uh, even my school classmates who are from a very elite background. But last week we had two uh, gatherings of our dude school people who we met after 30, 40, 50 years. Three, four of us met twice out here in Bombay. And uh, they have been also very supportive. And uh, 
after this book has come out, it has been put on the WhatsApp groups of the Bombay Doom School and the class of 16 Doom School, and there's been very positive response. Even if they, they say in so many words, whether we agree or don't agree with the viewpoint, must give credit for what is he's done. All said and done, it's not been too bad. Of course, then COVID came. And from one imprisonment, it came to a sort of another imprisonment. But I used that period like I did use uh, the jail also to reflect and think when I could, when we were peaceful. But I did use this period, in fact, to get this book out. Because if it hadn't been for COVID, I might not have been able to write. I didn't know it required so much effort. And uh, I really started only in February, March, uh, thinking of writing. And then COVID came. So anyway, I was demobilized. So... I focused on the book and uh, fortunately that resulted in what we see today. So it's not been too bad. No, not at all. You've been very <laughs> productive. We were so impressed with how quickly you, you know, we signed from the time that we signed the contract to you deliver the manuscript and had the book out. So you really did use your time very gainfully. Kobaz, my last question to you is what are your three wishes for the country today? First, it has, uh, it has to be much more human. Uh, that uh, the conditions of the people are just going from bad to worse. Things are really getting bad. And uh, that's the first thing, that uh, a handful of big business corporate houses are just amassing wealth upon wealth, while the poor are just being crushed under, including, you see, the farmers, who are not absolutely the poorest of the poor, but really they are being pushed to the wall. And the present dispensation, it's been part of past history, right over the last 40, 50 years. So first point is that the economy should needs to be far more fair and just to the people of this country. Otherwise, the people of the country are going to really get it very badly. The second point is that the economy also should be geared to protecting the environment. Just now, it's completely being destroyed, the whole uh, country, uh, the type of development pattern. And part of that is linked to what they're doing in the forests and the Naxalites and all that type of stuff by pushing mining interests, real estate interests, destroying. Even in urban areas, all the water bodies are being gobbled up. We see here in front of our house this new coastal road coming up, uh, ridiculously reclaiming land. And already the Marine Drive has been, uh, had to be, uh, huge boulders had been put out there to prevent the water from coming in. And in spite of that, I can't understand the logic of it. They're just reclaiming more land to build a coastal road. Everywhere you find that the ecology is being destroyed, you look at the Himalayas also. The Himalayas are also being completely destroyed for tourism and for other purposes. Everywhere you go, the cities, Chennai, Bangalore, Bombay, all the water bodies have been built on and encroached by real estate uh, people. So the second point is, first, the people have to be protected. Second, the environment has to be protected. And third, democracy. Really, there's no uh, real, there's never been particularly, and now particularly it's bad. Democracy is really non-existent uh, or it's there to a very limited extent. Now, as in, I explained in my book, freedom and democracy doesn't start from the government. It starts from oneself. And it goes on all the way to uh, the party and the government system. Uh, that I've explained freedom and democracy from the point of view of alienation, from the point of view of so many other aspects to it. And we find that whether it is our culture, whether it is our political system, whether it is our caste system, there's hardly any democracy, real democracy in the country, even in ordinary human relations. 
So I really that's linked to the culture, and so I believe that the third aspect is India needs to be really democratized in a far larger extent that exists today, from in all aspects of life, political, social, cultural, and in human relations. So these three things, I think. Thank you, Kobad. And now we're on our last segment, which is called Know Your Author. It's a rapid-fire round where I ask you a question, and you have to answer the questions very quickly. So let me begin with the first thing you did when you were released from prison. Well, when I uh, my sister took me out from uh, Surat Jail, and I was received by Neenal. She works on energies, and she really helped me uh, settle into a, a more relaxed atmosphere. She received us at four in the morning, kept up awake the whole night, and received me when we landed from Surat here. And after that, uh, without any uh, much ado, I went to meet uh, Anu's mother, who was ninety, in bed, uh, which is not far from where. My sister stays about three kilometers. Sunil and the whole family came over and picked me up. And by nine, we went and met her. That was the, really the first thing we did. And oh. she was very happy because we had been in touch all through the jail experience till she was able to writing, reading, and talking on the phone also. Mm. No, that's that's lovely. Tea or coffee? Oh, uh, coffee. <laughs> Marx, Lenin, or Mao? Who would you be friends with if they were alive and your paths crossed? Well, they are all part of the same uh, historical tradition, so I I can't choose from either. But uh, certainly, Marx was more philosophical, and uh, and maybe Mao also. But uh, and I'm uh, my whole focus now is on philosophy. But things have developed since then, like Freud and psychology and things like that, which also have to be delved into. A trait that you admire in people. Simplicity and straightforwardness. Simplicity and straightforwardness. A trait that you dislike in people. Arrogance and ego. Thansak or Berry Pulao. <laughs> Thansak, of course. <laughs> the most interesting person you met in prison. Uh, well, you can say Abdul Guru was the most interesting because there were no others, and the Sudendra Kulkarni was another one who I briefly met, who was very. Intellectual and helped uh, uh, think. Everything. These were the two intellectual people I met in jail, basically. Bombay or Nagpur? Nothing much to do. They're much the same. Both urban areas, but uh, I think uh, Nagpur and Pune are better cities than Bombay. Ambedkar or Gandhi? Who was more charismatic? Ambedkar, I feel. One guilty pleasure. One guilty pleasure. Well. Eating. Okay. <laughs> so thank you, Kobad. That brings us to the end of the rapid fire round. And thank you so much for giving us time, and also, of course, for giving us the privilege of publishing your book. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Priya. Thanks for the interview, and also, you really done an excellent job on the book and promotion of the book. I'll try and uh, help to whatever extent I can. Thank, thank you, you, Kobad. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening in. This was Beyond the Lines by Roly. If you liked this show, then subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out all our books on rolybooks.com. That is R O L I B O O K S.com. Since you are here, 
You can get a 20% discount on all the featured books in this podcast series with a special coupon code BTL20 on cmykbookstore.com. That is cmykbookstore.com. We'll be back soon with our next episode. In the meantime, do tell others about our podcast and stay tuned. <laughs>